You're listening to the ONP Check-In and SPS Podcast. This podcast brings you the latest happenings in the ONP industry. We're unpacking trends and news from this tight-knit community of orthotics and prosthetics. Thank you for joining us. My name is Jackie Green, and I'm a marketing specialist at SPS. And I'm Brendan Erickson, a regional sales manager here at SPS. Yeah, and each episode we will discuss a hot topic in the industry, provide an SPS update, and cover a news article from the world of O&P. Okay, welcome to episode three of the O&P Check-In, an SPS podcast. Hey Jackie, did you ever think we would make it to episode three? Man, there were a lot of twists and turns, but I'm glad to have arrived at this milestone. I think we can consider ourselves amateur professionals in the podcasting world. Oh yeah, amateur professionals for sure. Move over, Mr. Conan O'Brien. Here we come. Anyway, today we're talking to somebody I know very well. And to tell you the truth, he couldn't refuse to do this interview because, well, I know where he works. Former Paralympian and SPS sales account manager, Jamie Brown. After that, we will discuss a news article from the world of O&P. All right, before we get started, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. KnitRight offers prosthetic shrinkers for every stage of the patient journey. The Compresso Grip Elastic Shrinker is designed for control and prevention of edema, following amputation surgery, and for limb volumetric maintenance. The four-way stretch shrinker features a dot silicone suspension band to keep the sock comfortably in place and Ionic Plus fabric known for its moisture wicking properties. Explore KnitRight's shrinkers on SPSCO.com. Congratulations to our 2022 SPS OMP Master's Scholarship recipients. Okay, so our first recipient is Caitlin Bowman from the University of Pittsburgh. And the second is Cody Alcott, and he is from Baylor College of Medicine. Brendan, I know you were actually a part of the process, so you got to be behind the scenes. Process is the right word. Um, you know, we get a ton of applicants, and then we have a council of, uh, I think we have five or six people on it. And we, we all need to read all through the transcripts, through the essays, through their letter of recommendations. And then it's actually really fun. We get together and it's almost like a, not, not a draft per se, but almost like a, like a court hearing because we, we go through all of them and talk like the pros and, you know, pretty much they're all amazing and all could win or be a recipient, if you will. And, and you're really, I mean, it's a tough, tough job. You're picking um, between all of these worthy applicants and you just got to find one or two that stand, you know, slightly above the others. So it's a monumental task. There's no algorithm that's helping you guys sort out who the recipients are going to be. This is like a personal walking through each application and trying to pick. Yep. Yep. And there's no, there's no right answer to tell you the truth. I mean, literally, I know it's cliche to say, but like every single person that submits has a valid reason to be a recipient and it's, it just makes it tough. Every year it's grown substantially and I can't wait to see where it goes. Yep, so be on the lookout. I think we launch our Technician One uh, again in the fall. All right, let's dive into our interview today. Let's welcome our guest. It's Jamie Brown, someone I'm getting to know a little bit better and super impressed with. He recently joined SPS as a sales account manager for our Oklahoma and Texas territory. Before that, he served in uh, regional medical sales, commercial fitness equipment sales and distribution and sales education for almost, what, 15 years, I believe. Jamie is also a paratriathlete and represented USA in the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games. Hey, Jamie, thanks for joining us today. How's it going? It was the 
it was originally scheduled for 2020, but it ended up being the 2021 Paralympics. Yeah, so the pandemic definitely gave the games a curveball. We're so happy to have you on the podcast, Jamie, especially because the 2022 Winter Paralympics are kicking off soon, you know, starting March 4th through the 13th in Beijing, China, and should be in full swing when this episode is released. For those of you listening, be sure to watch this year's games on the NBC Sports app or NBCOlympics.com. You can also see the show notes for the full schedule. Okay, so um, why don't you share a little bit about yourself for our listeners who don't really know you, because I know Brendan and I kind of know a little bit about you and your background. So why don't you start there? Yeah, so well, um, so I'm a was born with a fibular hemomelia, so I was amputated when I was 10 months old um, a very long time ago, and kind of always gravitated towards sports. It was a big part of my uh, my youth and like just my way of connecting with my peers. Um, so competition was always a big thing, and I just loved to play. It didn't matter if it was uh, baseball, football, hockey, roller hockey, basketball. Um, kind of did everything. Um, and then as I got older, I excelled quite a bit at baseball and then ended up playing through high school and then ultimately in college uh, at Chapman University. And as far as I know, I'm one of the only amputees that have played collegiately. Uh, had the fortune of our team qualifying for the College World Series one of the years. So that was pretty cool um, as far as like just getting to those like kind of sporting events, um, which I've ultimately think probably prepared me a little bit for the Olympics, you know, so many years later, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's been a wild ride and then got into, you know, I, after I finished in college, I didn't think sports were ever going to be outside of coaching and doing stuff like that. Another, you know, I thought I was basically done being an athlete and, uh, yeah. And my wildest dreams, I didn't think I was going to turn around and become a Paralympian. Um, I didn't even know what the Paralympics were until I was in my 20s. So um, it just wasn't something I was ever like, like, no, I was a, I was a able-bodied athlete, I guess, with one leg is what I would like to say, I guess. So how, how did you get into triathlon racing then? And like, can I, I don't know very much about triathlon racing so you can explain that a little bit too we'll do the, the cliff notes version of it so triathlon <laughs> uh triathlon is a swim bike and a run so and it goes in that order um the distances kind of change depending on like what the names are so like the olympic level and the paralympic level are considered sprint and olympic distance so my distance was a 750 meter swim a 20 kilometer bike and then a five kilometer run. The Olympic distance is basically just double that. And then they have the half Ironman distance, which is double the Olympic. And then the full Ironman, which is double the half Ironman. Oh my gosh, okay. They're the same sports, but like the energy systems it takes to do the different um, distances are very different. But ultimately it's a swim bike run. So in 2012, they at the London Games, they announced that it was gonna be into the, put into the Paralympics for Rio. So it co coincided with me being, um, working with a, a para-athlete that was like actually um, involved with an organization called Challenge Athletes Foundation which happened to be in San Diego, which is where I was located. And 
they were founded on a triathlon. So they put together this camp. Uh, she reached out for me. She was like, this is something you should just get into. And no, by no means did I go, oh, yeah, I'm going to go be in the Paralympics now. I mean, at that time, are you like regularly training? I mean, you're not you're not out doing triathlons. You're just probably jogging and staying fit, right? But then went for it. I didn't even have a running leg, so <laughs> I mean, I was doing all my stuff still on like my walking walking leg. I didn't have anything kind of set up for the bike. I mean, I had a bike, but nothing like for racing triathlon. And then, uh, yeah, and I hadn't. I've been in the ocean my whole life, so swimming was like I've never swam like per se, like laps and stuff like that. But I was comfortable swimming. It was open water. Um, so I, that was, it just kind of like happened for me, to be honest. Wow. So even, even back in college, you weren't using, you were just using your regular foot. Wow. Okay. Just my regular low profile Veriflex, if we want to call it that back then. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Okay. We've kind of heard your story, how you even got involved, how you got into racing. How did you end up on the U.S. team? How did, how did you get, what was the progression that got you there? And then how, and then how do you also make, how do you even make the Paralympic team? Is there, are there, are there, I'm assuming there are tryouts and then whoever the top slots are get it or is there like a selection process? Yeah, it's a little more complicated than tryouts. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, how did I get onto the national team? I guess we can start there. Um, so basically, triathlon's broken into six categories. So there's a wheelchair where you basically have to do the whole sport from either a, a racing chair and a, a hand cycle, and then you swim normal. Um, and then there's a categories two, three, or PTS two, three, four, five are basically you do the whole event as a, a normal person would do it. There might be modifications to your bike if you're missing your hand or something like that. But in that two, three, four, five is basically set up for two is the most disabled. So for example, you'll see a lot of above the knee amputees in that class. And then PTS five is the least disabled. So those are going to be more of the hand amps or like someone with maybe drop foot or something like something along those lines. And then the sixth class is the visually impaired class. So they do everything with a tandem bike and someone attached to them. So, yeah, it's a, it, it really is a team sport at that point. Um, and they can be completely blind or visually impaired. And then they have a, a, you know, a factor system set in place for those athletes over that class. But, yeah, so I ended up in four Um which is a lot of below the knee amputees are, are in that class as a, as well as like above the elbow arm amputees. So high up. Um, and then I honestly, it was my second race uh, I ever did was national championships in New York city. And I got out there and yeah, it was crazy. Cause um, I had never ran. It was an Olympic just, I had never ran six miles and I had got my running leg probably like, three weeks before it. Um, I'd been riding a lot and swimming a lot. And like, I get in the water, you're swimming in the Hudson. So you're going down river at like 12 miles per hour <laughs> swimming. At like, yeah, you're, you're flying down the river and I just get out and run just, and it's an out and back course. So you never, I never saw anyone. I just assumed they were ahead of me. <laughs> 
And like, I'm going through the run course and you never see them because you're running a loop around Central Park, um, which is very different than how like the, the modern courses are set up. And, uh, you know, I'm on mile five. I'm just like looking around. I'm just, I have to really go to the bathroom right now. Like, I'm like, is someone coming? Like, I, I, I drink too much water or something. <laughs> and I get to the finish line and there's a tape in front of me. And I'm like, wait a minute. I actually won this thing? Like, I, I, I mean... Yeah, I had no clue until the very, very, like, I'm at the finish line. And that was my second, like, basically my first normal triathlon that I'd ever done. And that was national championships. And then I was like, oh, well, maybe I can do this. And uh, what year was it, 11 or 10 or something like that? But um, So your strength in swimming and cycling just shot you out in front of everyone. And then you started running and, and just didn't even look back. No, it was a really awesome experience. And at that point, I was like, okay, I, I, I mean, it, it was the US. So um, I had no concept of like the international talent that was out there. And I ended up going to the world championships the following year because I don't they didn't even know that um, they kind of pre picked who was going to go to world championships. Uh, they did not see me winning that race. So it was kind of like set up and it was the time frame was really close. So anyways, it, yeah, I ended up, you know, racing internationally after that and then um, went to the world championships the following year. And that was like the wake up call of wake up calls. It's like, okay, like these guys literally whooped my butt all over the place. Like they, they were all fast. It was like, you're not going to get better unless you get your butt kicked or you lose. Like that's how you learn um, if you really want to do this. <laughs> so, and it's a hard sport. It's so... Um, in general, <clears throat> but at that point, I basically was on the national team and kind of have been on the national team until January 1st of this year, where I kind of like stepped away a little bit. So, um, yeah, it was, a. Uh, it's awesome. They take such good care of us, USA triathlon and the, the USO PC. So, so do you think things, despite the COVID restrictions, do you think there was a similar atmosphere to other large sporting events over the course of your experience? Or do you think COVID really kind of changed the mindset and the whole Olympic experience and either added to it or took away from it in some ways? So with triathlon, I've been very fortunate and I've been able to race in Japan like five or six times. Um, the way triathlon is set up, we, we basically are attached to our able-bodied side so the, it's called the World, World Triathlon Series. So we actually train and we race with the able-bodied side during this, the World Series. So what I can say is I felt terrible for the Japanese public that they didn't get to like be a part of the events in the way that... Because it's probably the best places I've ever raced is in Yokohama and Tokyo. Because they're such big sports fans. I mean the events were sold out within minutes of the tickets going on sale. And that that's para Olympics and the regular Olympics. So I felt bad for that part of it. Um, when we were there though, in the village was the first time that I was like, cause you're always with the triathlon people. I never got to, we never go and see like the ping pong or the, all the other different events that are, that are there. So like, the depth of the different athletes um, at the village 
that was the first time I was like, wow, this is probably the coolest thing I've ever been involved with. So we actually had spectators like on the bike and the run portion of the course. So that was cool. Like we, we got that energy, but yeah, it was kind of surreal. I'm not going to lie. Like when you leave the village and you're driving to our venues, like where we would go swim or wherever, and you could see all of the venues from skateboarding, the volleyball, the beat, like you pass all of them like along the highway and they're just these beautiful venues that never got filled. How about your men- mental kind of, I guess, strategy at that point? I mean, did that creep into it or are you just all system go? I don't even want to think about the pandemic at this point. I just need to focus on myself. Like how, how does that lend itself in your mind? You got to manage your energy. That's for sure. Because we raced really early. Um, like we were at the venue at like 3 a.m. Because it's so hot there. Like we had to be done by like eight, eight o'clock in the morning or something like that. So it's, it's hot. It's by noon, it's like a hundred degrees and a hundred percent humidity. Right. Right. Okay. Very cool. So Brennan, do you have any, any other questions before we do the hot seat questions? No. Do you, are you ready for this hot seat, Jamie? Did you know this was coming up? You remember it was back on SportsCenter they used to do this and I loved it. It was my favorite part of SportsCenter. They, they get an athlete on there and they just random questions. So This is like the recruiting stuff they did for baseball. Like, Brendan, do you want to take it away or you want me to take it away? Why don't you start and, and I'll follow up. I want to I prepare myself and really attack him from different angles. All right. Are you ready? How many pets do you have and which one is your favorite? So currently I have one pet. Uh, I, I did have 10 pets at one point, uh, six dogs and four cats. Uh, so I have to default to the one I have now, which is Maverick. And he, he's my three-year-old uh, rescue from Mexico. Okay. Okay. So um, by default, he's your favorite right now. He has to be my favorite. All right. Well, so I'm going to go off the cuff here just because you said your dog's name is Maverick. And I'm going to go to Top Gun and I'm going to say Iceman or Maverick. Ooh. Iceman. He's consistent. He's not hot dogging. So March Madness, who are you rooting for? Uh, you know what? Duke. I, it's Coach K's last year. He's obviously been such an influence on so many the college basketball in general. So I would say I'm going to I'm going to pull for Duke. And I'm not even a Duke fan. It's a Coach K thing. All right, here we go. St. Patty's Day is coming up, March 17th. You can only choose one. Well, actually, I'm going to let you go wild card, but you have to think of it in, in under three seconds if you don't like either of these. Okay. Chocolate coins or green beer? Oh, green beer. That was a no-brainer. Okay. This is more of a, a theoretical question, and I want to answer it as yes or no and why. But you got to keep it you know, off the cuff. You can't think about it too much. Is cereal soup? Cereal is not soup because soup is warm. Okay. So thank you. Your responses are now documented. We'll have them forever. So hopefully you really meant them. So before we wrap up this interview with you, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners or want them to know? Or I look forward to growing with SPS and, and making lots of relationships out of, out of all of my uh, new friends. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thank you, Jamie. I know, know you'd have a ton going on. You're traveling, you're working, you're learning, you're coaching you're cheering on the usa so really appreciate your time yeah i appreciate your guys's time oh thank you yeah no this is great thank you for joining us yeah if you you ever need to do a second round let me know
I don't want to get sappy here, but I think our sales team is really great. Yeah, of course I'm biased, but I think so too. So Jamie is taking over Michelle Purvis's territory, and Michelle is now covering the West Coast, right? That's correct. And also, major announcement and kudos to Miss Christina Cox, who was also promoted. So her territory has now been tweaked a bit as well. For anyone who is unsure about who their sales account manager is, please check our website. We will also add a link in the show notes. All righty, let's uh, dive into some ONP news. So Jackie, what's in the ONP news today? Okay, so there is a new exhibit opening in the British Museum, and it's a part of the world of Stonehenge. And one of the items that they are featuring is what is believed to be Europe's oldest prosthetic limb. Wow, that's awesome. How old are we talking? So they think it's like 3,500 years old, sometime around 1500 to 1400 BC. And it's bronze, which I would imagine would be pretty heavy with a nice detailed gold cuff. Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's like the socket, right? You got to have a good socket to wear a prosthesis. And I mean, I'm sure, especially if it was bronze, it's probably heavy. So that gold cuff. Sounds like we need to up our, uh, up our game, some gold detailing on some uh, nice prosthetic devices. But anyway, this, this also was used as like a dagger they're not, they don't seem sure that if it was just used as like a regular hand or if it was used as a potential weapon. Because in one of the images you can look at, there's there's definitely like a knife that you could attach to it. Gotcha. But then there's a de- clearly a detachable like dagger shaped item. Genius. I love it. Genius. Where can people see this? They can see this at the British Museum. Well, <laughs> say you can't go to the British Museum. Where can we find this online? Oh, well, yeah, then you check our show notes. We're going to link it in our show notes. <laughs> okay. And this was found in London? Where, where did you say it was found? Oh, found in Switzerland. Oh, gotcha. Okay, cool. And with that, thank you for listening to the ONP Check-In and SPS podcast. Yep. And if you like what you hear, as always, please hit that subscribe button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please also be kind and rate and review so other industry professionals can easily find us. We would also love to hear from you directly. What topics do you want to hear about? What would you like us to talk about next? Email us with your thoughts and feedback at SPSpodcast at SPSco.com. See you next time. Yep, fill up that virtual suggestion box. Later, everyone. <laughs>